Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. Hey, Marion family, we have a special podcast episode here for you today. You might know that last week during the Sunday School Hour, Isaac interviewed our own Fred Hansen about the work of the ministry that he works with called TCM and all that they are doing to build up the church all around the globe. And we weren't able to live stream that last Sunday like we normally would for our adult Sunday school class, but we were able to record the audio of the conversation. And so we've provided that recording here for you to listen to. We've had to make a few edits. We had some issues with audio quality and things like that. So you won't get the full conversation, but you will get to hear a lot of it. And so we hope that if you weren't able to join us for Sunday school this week, listening to it now will be a time uh, for you to learn about the work that TCM is doing, especially the work they're doing right now for those who have had to flee from Ukraine. And that it would be an encouragement to you as you hear more about this uh, ministry that is doing great work all around the globe that we get to partner with. So with that being said, I will hand it over to Isaac and Fred. Uh, We're going to get things started. We are doing Sunday school in here today uh, for multiple reasons. Uh, but the main one is, is we talk, uh, we talk much in this church about missions, uh, global things. Uh, we have heard and seen uh, the conflict between Ukraine and Russia of recent. Uh, Fred was nearer to that in geography than any of us that I know of in recent. Uh, we talk about this these words, these acronyms like TCM and PBT and things like that. Um, And so for me anyways, as your associate pastor who deals with students a lot, the more I can connect those dots with students, the more I can connect those dots with myself uh, and keep continuing thinking globally, uh, I feel like not only am I a better humanitarian, I'm a better Christian because things aren't the same in other parts of the world as they are uh, down the block. I have the privilege of most days of complaining about things that others wish they could complain about. Uh, and I know that. So uh, today, as we even get done with uh, our worship service today, we have electricity on all day. Uh, we're going to burn gas to get here. Um, there's gas stations everywhere. It's good gas. It's not watered down. Uh, we have a lot of good things happening. You all are eating donuts and drinking hot coffee. Uh, so there's a lot of good happening here, uh, but the world isn't the same everywhere. Uh, not everywhere is America. So I think one thing we're going to start out with, uh, you can jump in with questions at any point. Uh, I'll repeat them. We are recording this, just the audio, uh, and so I'll repeat them for that. But uh, you can jump in at any point and ask questions of Fred uh, because... We want to we want to cater to that. So I think Fred, what I want to start out with is is we hear this TCM a lot. What is TCM? What do you do for TCM? What's it all about? Lay it on us, and we'll go from there. Sounds good. Thanks, Ike. The is TCM stands for nothing. Uh, it's a brand name. Began as Toronto Christian Mission back in the 50s and 60s ministering to refugees from the Soviet Union who'd fled to Toronto, Canada, uh, began as a way to work with so Soviet expatriate pastors and providing them with resources 
for studying and growing in their ministry. And then, of course, developed into Bible smuggling operation. So from the early 1960s until 1991, the primary focus of TCM was to smuggle Bibles behind the Iron Curtain. When the Iron Curtain fell, there was no need to smuggle Bibles or Sunday school materials any longer because churches could get those things for themselves freely at that time. And the churches behind the Iron Curtain uh, told us that they would like to see more opportunity for Christian education uh, because the Soviet Union is, was very anti-Christian, as all communist regimes are. By philosophy, religion is a great threat to them, especially Christianity. Uh, Christians were kept from getting education and were kicked out of their jobs. And so people wanted an education, and they asked us if we would transition into an educational institution. So in 1991, TCM founded a seminary, and that's what we are to this day. We offer accredited master's degrees in theology, Bible, discipleship, uh, other areas of concentration to help train church leaders, not just pastors and uh, like Monty and, and Isaac, but we train elders and deacons and Sunday school teachers and small group leaders and often uh, aspiring leaders in those churches. And the reason we chose to do graduate education was because one thing the Soviet Union believed as a matter of philosophy is that all people are simply cogs in a machine. And in order to make the machine of communism work, every person that uh, they believed qualified was sent to university to get a bachelor's degree of some kind. And so most of our students already had bachelor's degrees, did not want to get another bachelor's degree, and so we offered them master's degrees. And uh, our students now come from over 46 different countries of the world. We no longer just work behind the former Iron Curtain. We now work in Asia, Central Asia, Eastern Europe, Africa, the United States, uh, Canada, so I could say North America, with um, hopes to expand uh, uh, to India. It was announced this week that we're looking to open a campus in India where we have hundreds of pastors that are awaiting uh, some training there as well. So in general, that's what we do. We're an educational institution training Christians for leadership, and TCM as a brand no longer means anything. Just people know us as TCM. All right, Fred. Uh, how has your work at TCM, in particular your job, been, been affected by the developments in Ukraine in recent? That's a good question. So Russia and Ukraine account for more than 33%, so more than one-third of our students. So it, the, the immediate effect of it is that any classes that involve Russian speakers from Russia and Ukraine, from Belarus, Moldova, countries immediately bordering Ukraine, have all had to be either moved online or canceled. The reality is you can move courses online instead of having them face-to-face, -face, but when you're fleeing war-torn cities, you don't really have a lot of interest in, in going to, some do, but most don't have an interest in taking classes when they're trying to figure out whether or not their family is safe, where their next meal is going to come from, and where they're going to be living. Uh, at, uh, at a faculty level, uh, we have a professor, full-time professor from Moscow, 
who is absolutely opposed to the war and has made that publicly known. And so he is unable to have classes in his country because they've been restricted. But also his uh, personal well-being and safety is always a matter of question because he has publicly opposed Vladimir Putin. Uh, some of our faculty from Ukraine have now relocated to Haus Edelweiss, which is our main campus in Heiligenkreuz, Austria. They've recently immigrated and received refugee status in Austria. Uh, and so they've abandoned, I mean, not abandoned, but they've lost everything because our faculty from Ukraine all primarily come from the city of Kherson, which is now totally occupied and Russia has implemented its own independent government there. So it's affected our students, it's affected our faculty. Uh, we have um, our online learning platform is called Moodle, which many of you who teach in public ed and private ed here in the United States are familiar with, but it's how we deliver our classes online. And we have assistants who work in computer and information technologies who help us put all of our information you know, into that platform. And one of the gentlemen who does that is from Ukraine. And he is unable to leave Ukraine because he's between the ages of 16 and 60. And any men that are between the ages of 16 and 60 are forbidden to leave the country because they, they're needed for the war effort. And so he, this man sent his two teenage children uh, to live at Haus Edelweiss, our main campus. And so I've met met them, they're Madeline and Parker's age, a boy and a girl. She's 19, he's 17. And they're now living permanently at Haus Edelweiss. And I say permanently, and what I'm thinking is for the foreseeable years, because uh, we have no idea when their parents will be able to get out of Ukraine. So our students, our faculty, our IT department, everybody is affected in every way in our operations. And then as you imagine, because we're a Christian organization, it's not just about teaching the classes. We care for our students and we care for their families and their churches. And everything has been thrown into chaos and disarray as a consequence of the war. Um, one of my former translators, he was sent from Ukraine to Germany as a missionary five years ago for Russian-speaking churches. His family still lives in Kyrgyzstan. I uh, chat with him weekly on WhatsApp. And he has had no contact with his family since May the 1st. So he has no idea what's happened to his family because Russia has cut off all communication in and out of Kyrgyzstan. And so we have deep concerns about our students and faculty, families, and things like that. So You shared a story about uh, the drugs, the drug drive that we did. Tell us how that, that all went down once you, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good reminder. So. Uh, I left for uh, House Edelweiss back in early March, and it was just about 36 hours before I left. I get a note from our vice president of academics saying, we've had 26 families consisting of more than 50 people, uh, refugees from Ukraine, show up at House Edelweiss, our main campus. They need medication because all of these families in their flight, you know, they've, they've got head colds, covid Fortunately, it hasn't really been an issue. They all had head colds. Some of them had pneumonia and all these issues. And 
because they were giving all of the medication to the soldiers. All extra food, medication, everything was going to the front lines, and the refugees had nothing. So we asked all, all to help us participate in that effort, and we collected, I think, about 165 pounds of medication of various kinds, you know, Advil, Tylenol, cold medicine. Uh, Isaac and Monty, all into suitcases, um, delivered them to my home, and then I flew them over to Austria. 24 hours after delivering the medication, almost every last box, package, everything had been taken from the house by the refugees. It did not last long. It was a huge need. And so thank you so much for partnering with us in that. Uh, it, it was just astounding at how great the need was, and I'm convinced that if I had taken 300 pounds, it all would have disappeared because the refugees keep coming. They come and they stay three days, a week, two weeks, and then they move on to try to reach family and friends in other parts of Europe. Uh, but the need is still there. It's just the, the need is greater than we can currently meet at this time. And some people have asked if it was worth the financial effort, by the way, to collect the medication here and to pay to ship it to Austria, and the answer is yes. Medication in the European Union it is so expensive, first of all, compared to what it is here, that you, you can't even imagine how much it would cost us to try to gather 150 pounds of medication. And secondly, it's not available in bulk the way we can get it here. We can go to Target, we can go to Walmart, we can go to Sam's Club, Costco. We can pick up a bunch of medication. In general, the EU does not have box stores. If you want, med you want medication, you go to a tiny little pharmacy that's in the middle of town, nowhere near where you buy your clothes, your groceries, your electronics. You gotta drive everywhere, and those little stores might have two boxes of Advil. And so if you wanted to buy everything that you needed, you'd kill yourself spending time, money, gas, driving all over a city like Vienna, trying to accumulate it, and you still might not be able to come up with 150 pounds of medication. So it was well worth the effort, and we are so grateful. Thank you very much for that. I did have the privilege of uh, packing some of that, and for Fred to say how fast it disappeared, uh, there was three different times Monty and I took pictures of how much we had because we thought we had it all, and I wanted to capture a picture of all of it, and then we got more, and then we got more. And I think when we actually had all of it, it didn't fit all in the picture in the one classroom. So the fact that that all disappeared as fast as it did. Uh, Fred, tell us other highlights, lowlights, and in-betweens of your most recent trip. Just share us what, what you did and what you didn't do. I didn't die. That's, that's the first rule of the Hanson House. We, we always tell everybody the first rule is don't die. So that's always good. I was teaching a class in Old Testament theology. Um, and that was quite an adventure. But when I go places to teach, I, I, uh, you know, I'm a pastor, pastor teacher. It's, it's who I am. It's what I do. And I don't just like having students in my classroom. I like to be in their homes. I like to meet their families. And really been honored by God and by my students' families to have an opportunity to do that. And so had another good opportunity this year and have some of my students invite me into their homes to, to share meals. Uh, sometimes 
you know, in class we're talking about Old Testament theology, but when I go and have pizza, the pizza there for them is extremely expensive. It would be very cheap for us, but because their nation is so poor, it's quite a treat for them. And so when they say, would you like to have Pizza Hut? I say, yes, because I know it's going to be a huge treat for them and for their family. And so we'll be sharing over pizza. Stuffed crust? Yeah. Stuffed crust for sure then? What's that? Do you get stuffed crust? No. Oh. But it is thick crust. They prefer thin crust, which I don't like. Sorry. Give me the fat stuff. Um, and they ask me simple questions about family and how to parent. Uh, I get a lot of questions on how to discipline rebellious children. And I say I have a lot of experience with that. Um, now I'm just teasing kids. Uh, you know, they, they are like most people, even in our culture. It's just that we don't readily acknowledge it. And that is, especially young families, they've got questions. They want to know, how do I raise my family to be godly? How do I raise my home uh, to follow Jesus Christ? And, you know, one of the things I say a lot to my students here and everywhere, I do a lot of work with young men all over the world, mentoring them. I uh, work often with young men in the country of Estonia, which I was there in October, not only teaching but preaching at a a young men's retreat. And it astounds me at how often young men just want to sit and talk to me just because I'm older in the faith. And it doesn't have a lot to do with the fact that I'm a professor or even a pastor. It's just that I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm twice their age. I'm married. I have children. I have a job. And they want wisdom. They've got questions that they, they want to talk to somebody about. And I say to all of you, especially those of you who are more mature in life, never underestimate what you have to offer to people. They just want to sit and talk and hear about how you have navigated life with Jesus Christ. There's nothing fancy about it. Uh, they took me fishing last, no, before COVID, one family took me fishing in the mountains because they knew I liked fishing and they liked fishing. So we went fishing and we talked about God and family over trout. And um, this year I also got to preach in a very large evangelical church and on three-hour worship service with four sermons. I was the third preacher of number four. And that's, you know, very different for us. It's not our culture. It's very much their culture. But it was powerful to me to be invited to speak, by the way, 20 minutes before their service. So... One thing I've always learned traveling overseas, always have a sermon ready, tucked in your Bible, ready on your phone, because they'll ask. And so I knew I was going to this worship service, but I had no idea that I was going to be asked to preach. They just squeezed me in as the number three guy and discovered while there that the first two preachers were guest preachers from Russia, and they had preached sermons where they were basically misusing the Bible, claiming that... Uh, the Ukrainians should, should just accept their punishment from the Russians in the same way that God told the Israelites to accept their punishment from the Babylonians. So I had a sermon ready, but I scrapped it. And I, I preached extemporaneously for 30 minutes um, on how the Ukrainians were not 
the Israelites and the Russians were not the Babylonians because the church of Jesus Christ is not limited to one nation. They're, they're, first of all, they decontextualize the Old Testament anyway, but then they abuse the idea of the church, that the church of Jesus Christ is from all nations of the earth, and the kingdom of God is not limited to one political government structure. And we are citizens of heaven first, not citizens first of the United States or Kazakhstan or Ukraine. And encouraged everybody to unite under the banner of Christ rather than the banner of our political flags. Uh, they did not want to hear somebody misusing scripture to abuse the Ukrainians in yet another way. Uh, so that was quite an interesting event. I got asked, this was, this just came to me, I, I'd forgotten this. I got asked to speak one evening, so my translator um, runs an English-speaking school. Not a Christian school, that's just part of their quote-unquote secular job. And they said, we know you're here to teach Bible, but you speak English. And, and even though I teach these students English, I'm not a native English speaker. We don't get those very often in this part of the world. It's remote. Would you just come and speak to my class? So I, I went to speak to the class, and it was Earth Day, and they wanted me to speak on the subject of the Earth and where it came from. So here's a totally secular class there to teach English, and I said, I'm here to talk to you and to, to talk to you in English about where the earth came from, so here's what I believe. Basically lectured on the book of Genesis, and they gave me all, and you know, it was fascinating. I got done, and I said, by the way, there were probably 30 people there, mostly young people, and mostly non-Christian, as far as I could tell and as far as the translator knew. And I said, how many of you, by the way, would believe that the world was created by God? Every one of them raised their hand. I was completely astounded. So that was quite exciting to have that opportunity and then to learn that even though many of them don't profess Jesus, they all believe the world was created by God. And so maybe there's a, an opportunity in the future for the translator and other believers to, to work their way into that. So a lot of what I do goes outside the classroom, you know, into churches, uh, secular schools, secular opportunities uh, all the time. Flew back to Austria, taught for a week there uh, to students from the Czech Republic and Poland. Had a great time teaching that class. Uh, it was in Old Testament studies, not Old Testament theology, but teaching people basically a general overview of the Old Testament. And then I flew to Nairobi, Kenya to teach in Africa. And that was one of the most memorable experiences I've ever had. I've never been on the African continent before. And uh, went to Kenya, and my first day there, toured the slums of Pangani, which is um, Nairobi is a city, probably over 20 million people. If you look on the internet, it'll tell you less. But when you have countries that are as disorganized and dysfunctional as many are in Africa, they have no way to take a, an accurate census. And there are slums in Nairobi that are larger than Minneapolis and St. Paul combined. I mean, there's, there's one slum of over one million people that we went through. And when I say slum, I've, I've seen poverty in South America, 
Mexico. I've seen poverty, but I've never seen poverty on the scale that I saw in those slums in Nairobi. And one thing I learned is you can bring back pictures, but you can't bring back smells. Uh, it, it was awful. Humans, waste and sewage just running down streets. The houses are so tightly packed together that even given my weight loss, my shoulders were too wide to fit through some of those without turning sideways. And there's waste running down the middle of those little sidewalks. Houses are, you just walk down those tiny little cubbies into ramshackle huts made of um, tin and cardboard and tarps. And, you know, you don't always know where a door is because sometimes it's just a, a flap of a tarp. And there are children, two, three, four years old, running barefoot through all that garbage and sludge. And, um, and people cook in that. They've got propane heaters that they just set outside, you know, right there in what little space they've got. And they heat their water to cook and fry their meat there. And um, the, the school where, I, so TCM has a campus at a missionary school in Nairobi that we lease classrooms and dormitory space from them. And Christ Church of the Valley in Phoenix, Arizona has paid to do that for us. They partner with us and they pay for all of those expenses for TCM. And the, that missionary school where we teach, they work with these families in the slums. And so as part of my teaching, some of the adults who've gone through the missionary school, they wanted me to go see their families. They wanted me to go visit their homes. And so Monday, the first Monday I was there, walk into a tent in the slum of Nair in Pangani. I say a tent, it's just you know, a couple of posts on each corner with a blue tarp draped over the top. And there are two bunk beds inside. The room is not quite eight feet by eight feet wide, and that was their home for six people with all their possessions, their, their food, their ramshackle bathroom, they use uh, buckets for their toilets and then just throw it in the street. And visited with this grandmother and all of the grandchildren that she's responsible for caring for because her kids, um, you know, she has a daughter that's a prostitute and has given birth to four children as a consequence of her job grandma's trying to raise them in the name of Jesus, doesn't always know where the daughter is. The daughter usually shows up to drop off another child. Grandma's got to figure out how to feed them. These are the types of issues that are being faced by the students that we're training. So we're training them to do Christian ministry in areas like the slums of Pangani, and that's not easy to do. So big overview. Questions, thoughts, comments? So the question is, do, do the people I work with have misconceptions about us that I come across on a regular basis that might be troubling? And uh, the answer is yes, and there are two. The first one is that America is Christian. The United States is Christian. And actually, many of us still have, hold to that delusion, and that's not true. We are, I believe, now considered the fifth, the third or the fifth largest unchurched nation on the earth. And so I have to talk about them, about the necessity of preaching the gospel in the United States because Christianity is dwindling rapidly. So that's one misconception. 
The second is that all Americans are wealthy. And by the way, that's a misconception that we may, if I ask you directly if you believe that that, most of you would say no, but the reality is functionally we, most of us believe that. And especially when you live in Minnesota, because if you've never traveled down south, I remember when Cindy and I first moved from Minnesota to Illinois, and she was uh, teaching in Palmyra, we were astounded at the rural poverty. Now, people weren't living in slums, but they were living in ramshackle huts made out of tin, hammered together just like you would see in some of the places I go with no electricity and no running water. I did a funeral for one of Cindy's students. Uh, she had two, two brothers in her kindergarten class. Their three-year-old sister died of lymphoma. And Cindy went to call on that family, and that home was like some of the homes I see overseas. Traveling through Arkansas, where Madeline now goes to school, I had never been to Arkansas. And I was down there visiting Madeline and visiting some churches for TCM last fall. And I saw poverty in some of those rural areas on the scale of what I see overseas. And so the, the popular portrayal of America is that we are wealthy, and we are. But we are still like most other countries, and that is there's a huge gap between those who have and those who don't. Whenever you travel to a place, they want you to see the beautiful parts of the city. Same is true in Vienna. All the tourist spots are the beautiful spots. And they kind of push the poor and the oppressed to the side. They don't want you to see that. And so that's something that I have to talk about with them. We don't have, we don't have uh, poverty on the scale of one million in a slum, but we've got poverty and we've got dysfunction. Skid Row in Los Angeles, great example. We have it. It's just they don't see it because what they know of us comes from television. Now, here's a misconception I had, and I had to ask myself if this was racially uh, an, an area of unknown racism or not. Just to be real honest, I have to wrestle with these issues. When I'm teaching in Nairobi, and I'm walking through these slums, in the group that I went with, there was myself, there was a pastor from Liberia, and a pastor from Zimbabwe. And I have dealt with poverty on a global scale. I have seen it. And I was shocked when I got to Nairobi, but I was not nearly as shocked as the pastor from Liberia and the pastor from Zimbabwe. And that was a misconception I had to deal with because I thought to myself, all of Africa is poor. But the guy from Zimbabwe had never seen poverty on the scale that he had saw in Nairobi, never seen dysfunction like that. He was overwhelmed by it. And I had to stop and say, Fred Hansen, you have misjudged this massive continent as though somehow they're all the same. And it really convicted me because my, these were two men in my classroom, men I love. The, the pastor from Zimbabwe is actually an employee of Christ Church of the Valley in Peoria, Arizona. They employ him, plant churches in Africa where he lives. And so he's quite familiar with the American context. And he was just utterly astonished. And I was blown away by that. And I had to shift some of my thinking as well. So the misconceptions go both ways, just to be fair. Uh, House Edelweiss can legally house 160 people. Uh, because we are not licensed by the Austrian government to do that on a permanent basis, refugees, according to our current policy, refugees can stay three to seven days before they have to move either to 
a new location where they have family or before they move to a new location recognized by the government. So we have great capacity to house people temporarily. The people who are now living at House Edelweiss on a permanent basis, some of our faculty, are allowed to do so with refugee status because they already had a previous working relationship with TCM. Uh, and so any of our faculty, any of their families that already had a previous legal relationship with us can stay permanently if that's the arrangement we worked out. But in general, students' families and the families of you know, people we don't even know and have never met have to make some different arrangement, I believe, within seven days, if I understand it correctly. And that's assuming that I do. I know that's our policy. I believe I've understood that's how it's been communicated to me, but things change daily, and laws change rapidly in these times of crisis. Down the road from TCM, about 20 kilometers in a city called Baden, is a refugee center that can house up to 3,000 refugees. It is still half full with refugees from the Syrian crisis. And so the ability to take in Ukrainians has been reduced in that, that capacity. Most Ukrainians don't want to stay at House Edelweiss long term anyway. They prefer to go to Germany, which is the largest, it's the third, what, third largest economy in the world and the largest in the EU by far. So people would rather be there because they believe they have more hope of making some kind of an economic future for themselves. So the, the question is, do I have to stay incognito when I'm traveling? And the, the reality is, in some countries that I go to, the answer is yes. I've, I'm totally there as incognito as possible. In the age of technology, you're never fully incognito. You cannot hide, because one of the things you quickly discover is that even in poor countries, they invest a lot of money in their espionage and and Homeland Security departments. So every country you go to, you're being photographed upon entry, your fingerprints are being taken, facial recognition technology is being employed. So there's only so much you can do incognito. I travel mostly on tourist visa. You, you go and you visit churches. You're there to bring greetings from the United States. Uh, mostly the governments don't really look into what we're doing as long as we don't cause them problems. And so the goal is not to cause problems. I don't make political statements often when I'm in those places as much as possible. And so when I go into a church and I speak, there's always a risk involved that someone will be there listening and they'll go tell the government, hey, this American guy, he preached a sermon and that's not okay but it's not okay for the two Russian guys that preached either, and it's not okay for the German guy that came after me to preach. And so there could be a lot of domino effects, and sometimes as long as you're not fomenting violence or uprising, the governments will just simply let you go about your business. But I, I know I'm never as incognito as I would like to think that I am. And I've been stopped, I've been searched, I've been questioned by Secret Service agencies in various countries. Um, Ukraine, a number of years ago, was actually after Russia took Crimea in 2014. I had my 
probably scariest encounter with the Secret Service of Ukraine because they thought I was an unregistered U.S. military advisor when I was there. Um, but in general, I, I have frightening moments. I'm the only guy that gets off a plane in the middle of the night. It's like 1 a.m. And the soldiers, because that's, that's what you see in a lot of these countries, the soldiers take me to the transit hall, which is a dark, foreboding room with nobody else in it, and they tell me, you're just going to have to wait here. And I have no, long, how, I have no idea how long I'm going to wait, but I'm left sleeping there on that floor for hours on end. I text Cindy a picture of the hall, and I'm, the soldiers took me to this room. I don't know where I'm going and when I'm going to get there, but this is where I'm at. So far, they haven't taken my phone. I can still text. And after having been there a number of hours, the soldiers come and they wake me up and they go, we finally got a government official here who can check your documents. So they, they take me to a room where they check my documents, they interview me. It was intimidating at first, and by the end, this young guy who knows English just wants to start talking to me in English about movies and things because he's never had an American there to speak English with. So it turned out to be very scary, and in the end, it was great. And he's like, hey, thanks for the practice. And I'm like, anytime, you know. <laughs> and I went from being very nervous to, to thinking, Lord, thanks for the opportunity. So, Fred, you get done with a trip like this, and it's been, what, a month, two months almost? And uh, what's your, like, retrospectively, I guess, when you look back on it, what's your take-homes or, I don't want to say, like, do-overs, but, like, you get some time to think what have been your, I don't know, summations of it all. Well, um, the older I get, the more I learn that God uses those uncomfortable moments to help me become bolder. I was really unnerved. But just because I'm unnerved doesn't mean I'm in danger. In my mind, in my mind, I'm unnerved because I've never been there before because of the political issues that we have with countries in that part of the world. But I'm, I'm really coming to learn I'm always in his hands. That's just the reality of it. I'm afraid, but he is not. I am uncertain of what's going to happen, but God knows, and I'm learning to trust him more. And you can't learn those lessons if you don't place yourself in a position to be uncomfortable by submitting to his will. I'm just being really honest. If all I did was sit in a boat with a fishing pole in my hand in northern Minnesota, I would be very happy, but I would not be challenged. And he's really challenging me, and that's a retrospective I have. I'm also learning not to take for granted the opportunity to teach the gospel like in that English-speaking class. But I got an invitation, and I did it, and I'm fully aware they could kick me out of the country and blacklist me for 10 years. That's the standard, by the way. If you get caught doing that, they typically deport you, and you can't go back for 10 years. And that would seriously impact families, and I don't want that to happen. I, I just don't. But neither am I going to pass on the opportunity to share about God to an English class when that opportunity has been given to me because I don't know when another seed an opportunity to plant seeds will be given to me. And so 
I'm learning to grow in my faith and be more confident and to be bolder because, frankly, it's, it's, I'm very comfortable teaching Scripture in a TCM class. I've been, doing it, been teaching in graduate school for over 20 years. I'm comfortable in that, te- that environment. But I'm not often asked to teach totally secular classes you know, for an English school. So just, just trying to learn to take advantage of, of those opportunities when they come. Yeah, so there are others within TCM that are doing yeah. what I do. Yeah, repeat the question. Oh, yeah. The question is, are there others within TCM that are doing what I do, and are there other organizations that do what we do? And the answer is yes, there are others at TCM that do what I do. Not every professor does what I do. Not all of our professors travel and not all of them will travel to the countries where I travel. TCM gives you that choice. If you're not comfortable going to certain places, they're not going to force you to go to those places. That's the reality of it. Um, uh, so there, there are some that do and some that don't. And there's no, no one of us more righteous than the other for doing, going one place and going the other. Um, we all talk with our families, and we weigh the risks, and we weigh the advantages and disadvantages, and we make those decisions. There are some professors who are going places that I still can't go. So for instance, if we, we do have students from Islamic republics where an American passport just doesn't get you in. You'll either be turned away, or if they let you in, if I went to teach, I would endanger my students because an American passport immediately puts a tail on me. But we have students, we have professors that come from other Eastern European countries that have better political relationships with some of those republics than America does. And so they go to those countries and they can teach in ways that I am not allowed and I'm very grateful for that. There are other organizations that do missionary work in the countries where I go. There just aren't many that do educational missions the way we do. They're not there to offer graduate education to leaders. They're there to do missions at a different level. Might be evangelism, church planting, discipleship training for the local churches. Um, And so, yeah, there there are lots of them that do that. Pioneer Bible Translators, whom Marion supports a great deal, uh, works in many of those countries developing translation of scripture for the people that work there. Every year that I've gone for the last five years, except for COVID in 2020, uh, the group that I have is committed to developing a new translation for the, and so the, the group that I'm working with has some ties to Pioneer Bible Translators, uh, but as far as I know, PBT is not involved in that particular translation exercise. By the way, one of our Ukrainian professors that has, she used to teach for, for TCM as an adjunct and, and because she has fled Ukraine has now been hired as a full-time professor for us and will live at House Edelweiss. I just learned this last Tuesday. She also works with Pioneer Bible Translators, uh, did work with Pioneer Bible Translators in Ukraine. That was her full-time job before she fled Ukraine and now she's working for us. I have no idea what her relationship to PBT will look like in the future. I haven't asked that question. 
All right, I have two more things for you, and then we can finish out with any more questions. Uh, what can we do to continue to partner with you and TCM? And also, uh, this question might say more about me than you. Sometimes I have these moments in life where I go, man, if everybody would just do this. Uh, are you ever on these trips where you look back at us in America and go, man, if I get everybody back home to do this, it would be a game changer for the kingdom. So you don't have everybody back home. You have 40 of us, but here's your shot. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I love the most and am most grateful for are the relationships we have with you here at Marion Church. It, it is hard to describe how important it is knowing that you're praying for me and my family when I'm gone, how important it is knowing that my family is cared for when I'm gone, and if something should ever happen. Somebody asked me this question this week, actually. And I said to them, I have every confidence that if something were to ever happen to me, my family would be well cared for, not just because I have family here in Rochester, but because I have a church family here in Rochester. And you've demonstrated that time and again, and that brings great comfort to me and to my family. Although my family's tough, and they, they, I know they're tough, and they do fine, and they get by. It's, it's comforting to me to know that there are people here who would help them. So what can you continue to do? And that is, please continue to pray and love and care for my family. I would say, please continue to love and support the ministry of TCM. Uh, we're not a perfect organization. There isn't one on the earth, and if it was a perfect organization, they wouldn't have me. But I am grateful for your partnership with what we do, because I believe that the ministry that I get to be involved in is important, or I still wouldn't be doing it. Uh, your, your financial support of TCM and the salary, uh, my salary with TCM is critical the opportunity to give medicine when called upon, that, that's important. And by the way, the, the Naughty Group, a number of years ago, sent some blankets over to TCM for some of the young kids that had just been born to the missionary families there that you've never met, a couple of families from Moldova and Romania. Uh, they, they, you know, had children, they're trying to do missionary work in a foreign country themselves. Austria is not native to them. And our group sent a couple of blankets over for them. And we're working to send some blankets over for a refugee family in Ukraine of a guy who had been my translator and was Dennis's translator when the war broke out. That's, those are powerful testimonies. And we ask that you keep doing that. What can you all do? And you, it's just what I've said. If you. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing everything that I could possibly ask for. Scripture makes it clear that not everyone is sent. When we talk about missions organizations, it comes from the, the, the Greek word angelos. When you start talking about angels or messengers, they're ones who are sent by God to minister to us. And at a human standpoint, 
we are called, some of us are called by God to be sent out. Not everyone is called, not everyone is sent. So I'm not one of those people that thinks everybody ought to be running around going to foreign countries. That's not biblical. But there is a partnership that exists between those who are sent and those who remain. And that everyone in that partnership is equally important. Just, you know, the Apostle Paul makes it clear he's no more important than the Philippian church because he's preaching the gospel while imprisoned in Rome. They're just simply in a partnership where he preaches in places where the Philippian church could not, and they financially support him because that's what they could do. And they pray for him, and they sent Epaphroditus to help meet his needs. And that's what churches do. They create partnerships with people who go, and they, you know, I view my teaching and my preaching as an extension of the ministry of Marion. That's what I've been called to do, and I go places where some of you don't have the opportunity to go. But what you do have the opportunity to do is to love, to pray, to support, to care for my needs and the needs of others, and you do that. And by doing that, you're doing the same thing we ask every church to do, regardless of where they're located. Nairobi churches send out missionaries, and they love and care for and support those missionaries. It's just, it's just what you do. Does that answer the question? Yeah, absolutely it does. Any more questions out there? Well, instead of talking about praying, I think we should end in prayer. So just in your table right there, just one or two of you pray and uh, close it out with a time of prayer, and I'll pray for you up here. By the way, yeah, go ahead. I would like to mention that Marion has sent short-term workers to House Edelweiss, and we wanna, we're grateful for that, and we would like for that relationship to continue, and we want to pray for the families that go to House Edelweiss. Marion also sends Dennis and uh, Martin and Rick Walston have come to teach at House Edelweiss. And so uh, there, there are, I get to be the person who sits here and answers the questions and kind of get to be the mouthpiece. But there are people here at Marion who've made great sacrifices to do work for TCM as well. And I'm, I'm grateful for all of you. And we want to pray for those families too.